Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Chris, as usual. If you are here tonight, maybe you're tuning in online, welcome. If you're here tonight, welcome. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 26. Maybe you're swiping there on your phone. We're going to be bouncing around Isaiah tonight, but we're going to be starting in Isaiah 26, verse 3. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. And if you're taking notes, you can simply put down peace with God. We are in this series called Shalom. And tonight, quite simply, the sermon title is Peace with God. But before I get rolling, I almost feel like I have to reintroduce myself because there's so many new faces every week here. And I've been here like a month because of, well, life. So allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Pastor Justin and uh, <laughs> also known as Juice. Um, when you've been at a church on staff for 10 years, you get nicknames and it's cool. I probably get called Juice up here more than I get called Pastor Justin. And that's cool. Um, but I, I've, if I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me why do they call you Juice, I would be on the Forbes list. But I don't want to talk about that tonight. What I do want to talk about is have you ever thought about why we're called Christians? Or what other names has the world called believers and followers of Jesus Christ? Now, Fred has hit on uh, some of this in the, the weeks prior as he's talked about the way. But here's a freebie. Did you know that in Roman culture, Christians in the early church were called atheists because they wouldn't worship Roman deities. They wanted to just worship the one true God. So they were called in that culture atheists, right? And as Pastor Fred has masterfully explained our discipleship model, he spent two weeks, right, talking about our call to know the story and live the way. He's emphasized, and I'll reemphasize to, to start tonight, that first century people who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah were identified by names that placed greater emphasis on becoming like Jesus and not just believing in him. Again, they were called the way because it was a way of life. And you may know, you may not, that Christians means little Christs. People that are so like Christ, you could call them little Christs. Again, as we've emphasized, we're called not to just believe in Jesus and that he's in heaven and that he rose from the dead. We're called to let him come alive in us to the point somebody would say, oh, that's a little Christ. His, his, his character coming alive in us, that's, that's praxis in our discipleship model. His belief is supposed to come alive in us. That's doxa in our discipleship model. His obedience is supposed to come alive in us, and that is shema in the discipleship model. If you're newer here, maybe you're watching online, those, uh, doxa and shema are up there on YouTube. If you scroll barely down our page, they're right there. We've done series on those. And if you're new here and you've never heard of Praxis, there's a small green book in the back, or you can go to letspraxis.com that explains, again, the character we're called to when we follow Christ. But we're in this series, Shalom. We're talking about the way of Jesus' peace. And in this series, Shalom, we're asking four questions. Are you at peace with yourself? Are you at peace with others? Are you at peace with creation? And are you at peace with the creator, God? And it bears admitting from the outset, and I know Fred admitted it before, if we were to do a, a sermon series on the, the, the concept of Shalom in its entirety, we'd be here for a year plus. But we're simply focusing on this idea of being at peace with our portion. And Pastor Fred introduced this idea of being at peace with our portion last week in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. In that parable, there's the master who represents God. There's the servants working and relating with one another. And then there's the work they're sent to do out in creation, right, with their portions. And last weekend, Pastor Fred spoke on peace with yourself how the recipe for peace with yourself and shalom with yourself is being at peace with your portion of unchangeables. And he gave us a list. 
It's a long list. Some of them were your point in history, your ethnicity, your family of origin, your sexuality. The list goes on, and it was good, right? This idea of breakthrough from self-loathing into peace with yourself and the way God has created you in his image, the Imago Dei. But again, tonight, if you're taking notes, we're talking about peace with God, peace with the Lord. And last week, talking about peace with yourself, Pastor Fred hit on unchangeables. And I will tell you tonight that peace with God is found when we are at peace with his unknowables. The things we're just, we just don't know about them. And no, I didn't come with the list because they're unknowables. And if I did, it would be infinite because God is infinite. God cannot be dialed down to a list. The point is, in order to find shalom, to find peace with God, I had to find peace with the fact that God is unfathomable. Shalom is found when I'm at peace with God's divine incomprehensibility. As we engage the idea of peace with God, though, you can turn to Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Now, what's interesting to me is in Hebrew, what we translate perfect peace in Hebrew is just shalom, shalom, because uh, uh, the repetitive nature of words in that language highlights an emphasis and an intensity. So you want peace, peace? You want shalom, shalom, forever, ever, right? Then you got to trust God, our transcendent God. This complex uh, concept of peace and shalom, it's almost like Isaiah dials it down to this simple idea, just trust God. But how many of you guys know it's not always simple? It's not always easy to just trust God. And our current culture would say that to trust something that you don't fully understand, that's foolish, right? That's folly, and we'll get to it, but it's a remnant of the Enlightenment era in, in the world where the idea was and the cry of our culture was we can figure it out. If we just investigate long enough, we can understand it. But the problem is we'll never figure God out fully. So sometimes we subconsciously live under this layer of distrust because we're scratching this impulse to make God something familiar, to make God like us when he definitely is not. See, to familiarize us with God's kingdom, Jesus used parables, like the one we talked about last week in Matthew 25 and so many others in the Gospels. And in the broader context of Scripture, God is almost exclusively described in metaphors and analogies. Why? Because human language breaks down when it's called to describe what's not just unfamiliar but undefinable. Like human language is impotent to describe the infinite. So we stumble at articulation. I don't know if you've ever read Ezekiel. I've read it again and again and again. And some of these visions he's tried to describe, I'm sitting there like, I don't know if something got lost in the Hebrew to English translation, but I do not understand what I am reading right now. Because our imagines, they're too impoverished when confronted with God's untouchable otherness. He has, again, divine incomprehensibility. There was a monk from Holland who was once quoted as saying, 21 years 21 years, I've prayed and meditated with the monks of the abbey. Hours and hours of the day and night, and yet, and I hope I don't shock or scandalize anybody, God was really unknown to me. The humble admission of God's divine incomprehensibility is echoed in the words of Thomas Aquinas, who said, the highest knowledge of God is to know that we don't know God. See, we, we read our introductory text in Isaiah 26, but if you keep turning the pages of Isaiah, you come across passages like, Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. 
For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Or you go to Isaiah 40. It says, to whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. Have you never heard? Have you never understood the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Now, contrast those verses and the verses throughout Scripture like those and compare them to some of the, the, the things you've no doubt heard from people in the church and in the world that speak with like this ludicrous familiarity of God. Like the God I worship would never fill in the blank. Or I can't, I can't see God doing this or that. And if scripture hasn't spoken to it, I'm, I'm always like, are you, are you sure? Because <laughs> again, his ways are higher than our ways. As high as the heavens are from the earth. But as the old lyrics go on one of my dad's old vinyls, probably in his garage now, it, it said we put a mirror in the sky. We look up and see ourselves magnified. Our God looks just like you and I. We put a mirror in the sky. That's why so many stories of people who ultimately walk away from the faith are rooted in this idea. They, they might not say it, but God isn't who I thought he was. Doesn't work the way I, I thought he would. And I'm not against this idea of deconstructing your faith. Right? Peeling back the layers of your faith and your foundations so you can make sure Jesus is the chief cornerstone is a good thing. Right? Peeling back layers of whether it be Christian nationalism or, or, or toxic masculinity, whatever it may be, wounds from the church itself, finding healing and focusing on Jesus, that's good. God's a healer. Do that work. But in that work, we are so quick to let go of God's otherness, for lack of a better word. It's often the first thing we do to make God something that's familiar to us. Right? We like God as Abba. And that's a good thing, right? Jesus tells us to address him as Abba. Jesus addresses him as Abba, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Praise God for that because that gives us this picture of unconditional love, which I need every day I live, right? I love this picture of God as, as Father. And I love that song, right? You remember the song, Good, Good Father, that we sang 11 billion times. Not long ago in worship, right? You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are. And I'm loved by you over and over and over and over and over and over. And the bridge, right? You are perfect in all of your ways. See, that's easy to sing when his ways are our ways. When uh, his truth lines up with what our culture might call my truth or your truth, which isn't a thing, but that's a, another sermon for another day. But God tells us in Isaiah, my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. And when we walk in that, let me tell you, that can become a sacrifice of praise. But I love that song. The House Fires live version, probably on Spotify, has hundreds, if not a thousand plays for me listening to it. And I can remember driving down 64 towards the south side, past Mercury Boulevard. It's blaring. My windows are down. I'm singing the chorus. And God asked me, hey, would you still call me a good, good father if you never have a kid that can call you a good father, right? Because at the time, Steph and I were struggling with infertility. We were three and a half years into this international adoption, which when we started was three and a half years with a trend of increasing. And three and a half years, they were still telling us, hey, it's three and a half years with a trend of increasing. And they might actually shut down international adoption, right? So this dream of, of becoming parents, it was kind of up in the air, right? So God's like, am I still perfect in all my ways? It wasn't just 
you know, finding peace with my portion. Fred actually hit on that, like fertility, that, that part of my portion in life. But it's also finding trust, finding faith and peace with God when his ways prove higher and altogether other than I would, what I would have planned for myself. But you know, the beauty of God's transcendence is, is even in light of that, like Chris reminded us in worship, he's not off in the distance, right? He's not just transcendent, he's, he's intimately close. I don't think it's a coincidence that it was in that season where I can point to one of like only a couple times in my life where I, feel, I felt the voice of God. I like to say that God is both infinitely powerful, but he's also profoundly inf- intimate. He's big enough for both. Infinitely powerful, but profoundly intimate. See, he promised us his presence. He says multiple times in scripture, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's, but yet he's transcendent, right? He promises his presence, but he doesn't show us his essence, right? Moses is like, hey, God, I want to see your face. And God's like, hey, man, didn't you see Raiders of the Lost Ark? The Nazi opens the Ark of the Covenant, his face melts. He's like, that's what would happen to you. He didn't say that. But he basically said, hey, you see, he said, you see my face, you'll die. Like he gives us his presence, but we can't handle his essence. He's transcendent, that transcendent, profoundly intimate, infinitely powerful. And look, even God's love is lofty. I love this Billy Graham quote. I'll never forget it. He said, God loves you, and he loves you with a love that you don't know anything about (laughs) because there is no human love comparable to divine love. Yet God gives us pictures of his love throughout Scripture. He doesn't want to just leave his love incomprehensible. We actually did a sermon series on this years back in Suffolk. We called it God's Love Language, and we worked through all the different pictures in Scripture that God gives us to describe his love for us. And the pinnacle of that, right, the, the, the ones we love are like the, the husband and the bride. We would study Hosea and Gomer, Jesus and the church. You've got uh, the everlasting father, right, that unconditional love there. You've got Jesus who calls us his friend. Then you start working your way down. You've got the shepherd and the sheep. Sheep are dumb. <laughs> we got into that. <laughs> and then you go down to like the first one we looked at is the potter and the clay. At this point, you're an inanimate object, right? You don't, you don't even breathe, right? You are just clay in the hands of the potter. And clay in God's hand is the imagery scripture starts with. I mean, think about it. Genesis 2-7, before the first love relationship between Adam and Eve, we see there was, there was they were the clay of the earth, right? Dust and dirt. And in Genesis 1:27, God created us, male and female, in his image. The creator God, the potter God, the one who formed humanity, made us in his image. Yes, we're broken. All have sinned and fallen short, but we were created as image bearers. Sure, we messed up that image in a major way with sin and brokenness. That's the bad news, right? There is far more mess in you and me than we would love to admit. But the good news is mess is God's specialty. (laughs) There's no mess too big for him. Give him a misshapen lump of clay and he can make something glorious. God is a potter. And we're the clay, just like the clay of the earth in Genesis. But to turn to Isaiah again, we see it there too. In Isaiah 64, verse 8, he says, We are the clay and you, God, are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. And in Isaiah 45, 9, he asks, as people were questioning God, he says, Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, Stop, you're doing it wrong? Again, clay doesn't even have breath. It's inanimate. It's a rhetorical question. But God loves this imagery. It's not just in Isaiah. Again, you go to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 18, he he wants Jeremiah to prophesy to his people. And he says, go to the potter's house first. I want to watch you work, watch, have you watch him work the clay on the potter's wheel. And as it's talking about it in the NIV version, it says that the potter shapes it as seems best for the clay. 
No, actually it says the potter shaped it as seemed best to him. It echoes Jeremiah's call where in, in Jeremiah 1.5, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And all these verses are tied together because the word for formed here in, like in, in Psalm 139 and the word for potter, they come from the same Hebrew word, yautzer. I looked it up, but David can correct me on that. He's the Hebrew and Greek scholar. But this Hebrew word speaks to forming and shaping, and it's also the word for a potter, this role that God has. See, God shaped us in the womb. That's calming, peaceful. Psalm 139, we love to quote it and frame it and, and, and talk about it. But the idea is he doesn't stop forming us. In our life, we don't hop off the potter's wheel at any point. I'm in the hands of the potter being shaped and formed into Christ's likeness until the day I die. In fact, the day that Christ died on the cross, his last words were, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those words were spoken by Jesus at the peak of what I would call the greatest act of trust in the Father we've ever seen. And his persevering trust won for us the fullness of life everlasting. His death was the beginning of life for us. And these words spoken at his death are words we should speak every day of our lives. Into your hands I commit my spirit, my body, my soul, my mind. Not just to the hands of the Father who loves us unconditionally, and he does, but the hands of the potter who shapes us and molds us into his image again. See, we like the, the, the God the Father who comforts, but we always like the God the potter who conforms us into the image of Christ. Romans 8.28 says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. We're called to be God's image bearers. We see it in Genesis as we were formed from clay in his hands, and we see it here, called to conform to his image. What image? The image of Jesus. It's no coincidence, again, that we're called Christians or little Christs. We, too, are called to bear God's image and imitate Christ in all we do. You know, at the end of his sermon last week, Fred asked the question, is it possible that as Christians we are trying to change things about ourselves that are supposed to be a part of the image of God in us, the Imago Dei? And I'd ask tonight, are we being made in the image of God or have we shaped God into our image? See, God comforts us, but he doesn't conform to us. We're called to conform to Jesus Christ and to be at peace with God, to be at peace with the potter, right? To, to be at peace with that process takes trust. Trust in his all-knowing, loving transcendence and sovereignty that shapes us what, like that potter, what seems best for him. And this trust isn't always easy. This trust takes faith. This trust takes courage. And I know in my life, I've lacked this trust. I've lacked this courage days, weeks, even seasons of my life where I'm just praying, God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And two factors in my life's journey that have tried to rob me of my trust and therefore my peace, my shalom, shalom, my perfect peace. Two factors in my life that are no doubt present in yours that I want to hit on tonight before we close is the presence of cruelty and the absence of clarity. The first, the presence of cruelty, right? Pain and suffering in life, often unmerited, undeserved. But again, Jesus's words, into your hands I commit my spirit, were spoken at the height of his suffering at human cruelty on that cross. And the question I think we all wrestle with in life is, how do you trust the hands of the potter in the midst of pain? How do you trust the hands of the potter when life seems to just be, life's hands are throwing blows, right? Jabs, body blows. How do you continue to commit your spirit like Christ did in the presence of cruelty and suffering? 
You know, the book Job speaks to the same dilemma, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it also speaks to this imagery of the potter and the clay. In Job 10, verses 8 through 12, in the message version, Job says, you made me like a handcrafted piece of pottery. Don't you remember how beautifully you worked my clay? You gave me life itself and incredible love. See, the root of our ability to trust in every season is that revelation of the incredible love of God the Father that allows us to trust in him and have peace with God, even in the presence of cruelty, even in the presence of suffering. The revelation of Job 10 is what allows Job to say in Job 15, even though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. You know, I'll never forget October 12th of 2019, because Steph and I were in DC. We were going up there to meet with her neurosurgeon, uh, to find a path forward for her degenerative condition, for her brain malformation. And as we were getting in the Jeep to drive to that appointment, right in the heart of D.C., just getting ready to hop in traffic, get to that appointment, we got a call from another doctor's office because our son had just had an MRI. And they told us on that call that our son, who, mind you, was not born uh, uh, by us. He doesn't share our genetics. We adopted him from the other side of the world, a nation with uh, uh, billions of people, and tens of millions of orphans. He ends up in our family, right? That same son, they, they gave us a call and they were like, he has Chiari, the exact same rare condition that we were about to go get my wife treated for. I can tell you that drive to that appointment <laughs> wasn't just driving through traffic, man. It was driving through tears, like 20 minutes of just pretty much silence. And because Steph is way stronger than me because of everything she's been through, right? She's the one that broke the silence as I was pulling into that parking spot. She opened up her phone, opened you version, pulled up Job, read those verses that ended with, even though he slay me, I will trust in him. <laughs> See, in life, right, you're going to cling to trust even while you still wrestle with pain, even while you still wrestle with grief. It's okay to wrestle with it even if it goes round after round after round. Let's be honest. Just like you read Ezekiel, even if you don't want, this is a safe place to confess this stuff. You read Ezekiel and, you, and you're like, I don't understand what I'm reading. I know you've all been, been with me where you're reading Job, and you're like, why is this so long? Why did they have to, like, open another salvo where they got to say the same things, and then Job has to say the same things? Like, couldn't this have been, like, 10 chapters instead of, like, you know, all the chapters it is? And, I, you know, God in his sovereignty and the Holy Spirit is no mistake, and I believe it's God in his sovereignty reminding us that we should not rush through grief. It's not a quick process. It's okay to wrestle with the doubts, to shout those angry questions at the ceiling. I did. I can tell you for the 48 hours after that drive and that appointment and that phone call, we had a, a, a worship night that Wednesday. Thank you, Chris. I needed it. But for that 48 hours, if I had to describe my relationship with God in one word, it would be angry. I was angry. And yet I reminded myself then, and I still had to remind myself, if God is powerful and lofty and transcendent enough for me to call him to account for all of human suffering. Isn't he transcendent enough and lofty enough to have a different vantage point, a higher perspective, and a higher reasoning than I do? I can't have it both ways. And scripture says his ways are higher than my ways. Like you talk about the presence of, of cruelty in life, C.S. Lewis once admitted in his writing that he originally rejected God because of the presence of, quote, cruelty in life. He lost his mother when he was real young. So he rejected the idea of this good God of, Christianity and became a self-proclaimed atheist. Again, how many people leave faith in God because he doesn't act or, or, or he isn't who we thought he was? 
But we know C.S. Lewis didn't stay in that place. He became one of the most famous Christian authors of both fantasy and apologetics. But later in life, he tasted cruelty and suffering again. He lost his wife after, I think it was like one year of being married to her, to cancer. And so again, he's wrestling with pain. He's wrestling with grief. And it's in this wrestling that he wrote the book, Grief Observed. I highly recommend it. Don't read it on a Friday night. It'll ruin your weekend. It's heavy. He wrestles with the questions we all do, like how can God be good and allow this to happen? And it's his journal, so it's like he writes some, and there's a chapter, and then like months have passed, and he's writing again. And that opening of the book, he's angry. Talks about how he's shouting all these questions, and it's like he's, he's shouting them at a locked door where there's no answer. And then after 70 pages of him processing over time, towards the end of the book, he says, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer. But a rather special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door. It's more like a silent, but certainly not uncompassionate gaze. As though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, peace, child, you don't understand. He says, heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked from under our feet. We shall see that there never was any problem. C.S. Lewis knew that his eventual peace wasn't going to come from crystal clear clarity about why things happened, but a fresh revelation of God's transcendence, his bigness, and his sovereignty. And this ties to the second block I've stumbled over in life as I pursue peace with God and trust with God that brings us peace. And it's the absence of clarity. The absence of clarity. The professor and author John Cavanaugh recounts in one of his books that he went to work at the House of the Dying in India, right, that, that Mother Teresa ran. For, he went there for three months. He was in search of the answer to the question of how he's going to spend the rest of his life. He wanted clarity about what is God calling me to spend the rest of my life doing. Maybe you can relate to that tonight. And he had the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet Mother Teresa, and she asked him, what can I do for you? He quickly asked her to pray for him. So she said, what do you want me to pray for? And he replied, pray that I have clarity. And she said firmly, No. I won't do that. And I said, rude, right? <laughs> no. Why, he asked. She said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. He commented, it's the one thing she always seemed to have. But she said, I've never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. See, the way of trust is the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, not clarity. I think it's, what is it, Luke 9, when, when people are coming to follow Jesus, Jesus is like, I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight, right? <laughs> there, there was no clear itinerary. It's not like uh, when we, we want to go off to a conference with the church, you get the itinerary with this is the hotel, this is your room, this is the morning session, this is the night session. Jesus is like, oh, cool, y'all can follow me, but I don't even know where I'm sleeping tonight, right? <laughs> he didn't give them a, a crystal clear, predetermined plan, wasn't cookie cutter. See, following Jesus is often a path into the undefined into, dare I say, walking by faith and not by sight. And you know what? That scares me. Why? Because <laughs> pride. Because I want control. See, I, I ask for clarity in my prayers. I want to know what's going on, but I so often want that because my underlying desire is for control. See, I want to, my life to be like the famous poem Invictus, right, where you are master of your fate, you are captain of your ship. But then I do a couple laps around the sun, get hit by some curveballs and some body blows from life, and, and it's scary when you begin to realize how much you don't control. Terrifying. But trust helps remind me, helps me remember who is truly in control. 
and put my life in his hands again. Not in a way that like strips me of agency, but in a way that I find peace with his sovereignty. I'm still captain of my ship. I'm still making decisions. I'm still leading my family, right? But I know who controls the wind and the waves. I'm still captain of my ship, but God is master of the wind and the waves. And as Jesus says in John 3, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, like the wind blows this way and that way. You don't understand where it's coming from. You don't understand the wind. It's the same with the Holy Spirit and being born of the Holy Spirit. And yet chapters later, in John 14, he doesn't just tell us, he commands us to trust that same Holy Spirit, that same God. Again, as we said at the outset, our current culture says that for you to trust something that you don't understand, you're crazy. See, mystery can be offensive to the modern mind. Sure, we love like the genre of mystery. Sherlock Holmes, Law and Order, right? All these uh, uh, stories where the mystery gets solved, but mystery mystery, actual mysteries, we don't like them. It's offensive, again, to the modern mind that's been shaped by the Enlightenment era where we can figure it out. Like, we can understand what's going on. But you know one of my favorite verses in Scripture? I don't think I got a life verse. I got probably like a top 10. This is probably in there. <laughs> it's Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29. It's always been core to my faith. It says, the Lord our God has secrets known to no one, and we aren't accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us. This verse reminds me that there are some lofty mysteries about God that I'm not going to know this side of heaven. We can print books about when God is coming back until we run out of trees on earth, right? 2000, 2020, 2012, whatever. But there are some mysteries we're just not going to know this side of heaven. And it reminds me that I can sometimes get so caught up in the obscure that I I forsake the obvious, right? That the get so caught up in the mystery that I forget what's mandatory, what he's made clear, what he's revealed to us. Like the series Shema, there's a reflexive obedience that we're called to to obey what God has made clear. But in this series, Shalom, there's a peace with God that we will find only when we're at peace with his mysteries and his unfathomable essence. But our culture, again, likes to think that if we process long enough, if we work hard enough, eventually we'll, we'll grasp these things and they will yield to our intellectual investigation. But I think back of in the 90s, I think it was like when I was in high school, after an 11-year, two-telescope study of the star Upsilon Andromeda, I probably butchered that pronunciation too, you can ask Nathaniel Miller about that one. This star that was some 264 trillion miles from the Earth, but still bright enough to see with the naked eye, when trying to understand, like they're trying to figure out how did this star that's so big come to be? And they were just trying to figure out how by the laws of physics did this happen? And one scientist just said to the news, I am a troubled theorist. (laughs) A star made for a troubled theorist. How much more creation as a whole? How much more the creator? How insufficient are our theories to describe the indescribable? The revivalist John Wesley once said of Deuteronomy 29, 29, the ways and judgments of God are oftentimes hidden from us, unsearchable by our shallow capacities, and matter for our adoration, not our inquiry. I love that last bit, and it's so important to hear in our culture that that some of these mysteries of God, they're just matters for our adoration, not our inquiry. Because in our culture, we want to capture everything, right? I'm I'm out in the woods with my son. Out comes the phone. I'm going to capture it. Or even just, again, trying to understand things and, and capture it in that way. We want to capture God, but God wants to captivate us. Sometimes God is, is so big, you simply have to shut your mouth and stand in awe. We're not always good at that, though, right? Like Chris, right, during worship, he stopped singing for like two minutes, and all of a sudden we're all just like, 
sweating bullets. Like, what are we supposed to do? Stand in awe. There's literally hundreds of commands in Scripture to behold, right? Like, just pause, take a break from living and the busyness and the constant critique and evaluation. Just stand in awe. Who remembers the old worship song? A little too late for the summer and song and all those throwbacks, but it says, you're beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depth of your love? You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above, and I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praises do, I stand in awe of you. If I could have the worship team come up, we'll actually have people sing some lyrics and not just talk them. But beholding creation and beholding the creator, again, it's a common theme and command in Scripture because beholding sparks awe, and our awe fuels our worship. And somewhere beyond just throwing your hands up and saying, I'm a troubled theorist, is, is throwing those same hands up in worship. And, it, and the creator and his creation doesn't just produce troubled theorists. He did the same to one of the greatest theologians of all time if not the greatest theologian of all time, the Apostle Paul. In Romans, Paul puts a bow on his thoughts on salvation history and God's plan for redemption, and he leads the reader in Romans 11 to what amounts to like an outburst of awe and amazement and worship. In Romans 11:33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. The message version reads, It's way over our heads, we'll never figure it out. This is this show of theological humility from Paul, one of the, again, greatest theological minds in history. But again, to quote Thomas Aquinas, the highest knowledge of God is to know that we don't know God. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, again, it reminds me, I want Shema in my life. I want reflexive obedience to the things that God has made clear, but I need shalom. I need peace with those things that are still going to remain a mystery, the whys, the hows, the, the, the secrets that are known to no one. Maybe my favorite quote about the mystery of God is by Dennis Covington, who once said, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Again, as Wesley said of God's mystery, it's a, a matter for our adoration, not our inquiry. We're going to come back for prayer. We're going to come back for practical ministry. We're going to have prayer lined up in front. But I, I want to apply <laughs> this appreciation and adoration tonight to simply stand and worship this God who, again, he's made things clear. Praise God for scripture. We got thousands of pages to, to guide our lives and for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. But man, there are some times where you can just stand, throw your hands up and say, God, I'm in awe of you, of your creation, of the things you've done in, in our lives. Like I share that story of Raj and I had to throw my hands up again and again and think God took this kid from the other side of the world where there's tens of millions of orphans and somehow connected him with a woman who had the exact same condition on the other side of the world. Like, that's a miracle. My first 48 hours were anger. But then I realized I didn't just get that diagnosis when I found out over the phone. No, God actually worked a miracle to bring him into our family. And that's that kind of sovereignty that I just gotta be like, I praise you. So I want to spend some time. Chris is going to lead us in worship. Maybe you're, maybe you're going to get singing and your voice will get raspy like mine was for this sermon. It's dangerous preaching after worship. Maybe you'll just stand there in awe and silence. Just ask that you don't go anywhere because we're going to come back for prayer. But can we worship God together? The God that is powerfully infinite and yet profoundly intimate and stands at the door of this church and our hearts and says, hey, I stand at the door and knock.
You open it up, we'll have communion together. Let's praise Him.